Roses are red, violets are blue. Poems are stupid. What do I do? That is a lot of modern readers. Poems suck. They make us think, they aren't straightforward. Everyone oohs and ahs over the deep ones. It's like they get something that you don't. But 33% of the Bible is poetry. And there's no book in the Bible that doesn't require the ability to read and interpret poetry to some degree, because every book includes at least figurative language. These parts are also known as the parts we skip or the parts we glaze over. 33%. Welcome to Anakinosis, where we renew our minds towards biblical worldview and the scriptures. This is a show for anyone looking to build or repair their biblical worldview. Whether you are 100% comfortable in the current Christian culture, or you feel like an outsider looking in, everyone is welcome here. My name is Jeremy Egan. I'm just a guy with a Bible literacy background who has ASD and who thinks a lot about how to think. In today's episode, we'll look at poetry and figurative language see if there's a way to get something out of all of this art without wearing ourselves out. Poetry is difficult to read. And that's modern poetry. Ancient Hebrew poetry is harder to read because it makes use of ancient symbols, similes, and turns of phrase. It doesn't aim to rhyme in Hebrew, and so it definitely won't rhyme in English. It won't have the meter or the cadence that we expect. If you've been around slam poetry or free verse, it matches that a bit better. They make use of all types of parallelism, which I mentioned a few weeks back. Our goal is to get something out of it without going broke on PhDs. Poetry has a different purpose than stories, and we need both. So let's jump in. When you think of poetry, you probably think of psalms. Me too. The Psalms aren't the only place for poems, but they have many. And they aren't just thrown together as a random collection either. They were carefully curated to the right spot in the book. From Psalm 1 to Psalm 150, we have the entire biblical narrative. It's pretty wild. And it's also pretty likely, based on historical evidence, that the Psalms were compiled into the type of collection we have today while the Israelites were in Babylon and Persian exile. And that makes the book of Psalms a stand-in to the people for the temple of God. It was the place where you could hear the story of God be preached and you could sing his songs. David's prayer for a temple to be built could be re-prayed by the exiles in a new way as they wanted the temple restored. David didn't write all of the Psalms, but those who wrote after him were providing the same sort of thing. Because of this feature, it isn't just one of those books that you read once and you move along. It also isn't a very good one to skip. And I've spent far too many years doing that myself. It's intended to be a read to experience God through art and song kind of book and rinse and repeat over and over. So Psalm is split into five sections, and you can still catch this 
uh, if you're careful, on your Bible app on your phone. Go to Psalm 42. Above it, it should say Book 2. Above Psalm 73, it should say Book 3. Above 90, it should say Book 4. And above 107, it should say Book 5. Psalm chapters 1 and 2 set the tone for the entire book with an allusion to Eden in chapter 1 and then an allusion to the serpent-crushing Messiah in chapter 2. There are many layers to the five sections of the five books. One layer shows the story of David in sections 1 and 2, his fall in section 3, and then the promises of a Messiah that will save and judge and restore in the final two sections. That's the the outline that the Bible Project points out in their videos. Another layer shows the story of Jesus from his sufferings and death to his future kingdom. This one was highlighted in Ori Miller's book, Two Plots Against the Lord. He saw each section covering Jesus's whole story to completion in the new earth itself. So the second section picks up with the persecution in the church age with Jesus as its head and then continues on until the new earth. And then the third book picks up at the judgment of God and then goes on to the new earth The fourth section covers the destruction of the judgment and goes to the new earth. And then he sees the fifth section just covering the new earth, which is God's kingdom. And maybe, maybe they're both right. Maybe neither is perfectly accurate. But one thing I know for sure from looking at all of this is that the Psalms are definitely about both David and Jesus somehow. Let's get started on peeling this poetry problem by looking at Psalm 1 which alludes to Eden. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the ways of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So, do you see Eden there? We've got a river, we've got trees, we've got a choice between good counsel and bad counsel. And did you see the ancient Hebrew parallelism? The twins, the triplets, the identical, the unidentical. I'm going to say something controversial right here in strict academic circles. I don't think that learning parallelism is the most essential thing to know about Hebrew poetry. I think you could skip it for now. It's most crucial that you identify and interpret the devices of poetic language that you learned in high school. Psalm 1 shows us language full of images. It puts us in touch with tangible realities like pathways and seats and trees and water and leaf and chaffs and uh, law courts. But the poets are never content 
with abstraction. So Psalm 1 is figurative, not literal. It's not literally about Adam and Eve. It's not literally about you. It's about us all, figuratively. The second line speaks of walking in the counsel of the wicked. The wicked do not literally walk down a path called the counsel of the wicked. They do not pass legislation or conduct legal seminars entitled the counsel of the wicked, nor do people stand together on a platform called the way of sinners. People in a scoffing chair do not take turns sitting in a chair with a sign over it that says the seat of scoffers, right? Verse 1 is thoroughly metaphorical rather than literal. Poetry uses poetic license. Look at verse 2, where it states that a godly person meditates on God's law day and night. There's a few different possible interpretations for this, but none are literal. No one consciously reflects on God's laws 24 hours a day. Perhaps that statement is hyperbole, an exaggerated way of showing how thoroughly the godly person is controlled by God's law. Or maybe... The word meditate that's used here is figurative to mean influenced by rather than consciously thinks about. Or perhaps day and night is a is an expression meaning in the morning and in the evening. So Psalm 1 also shows how poetry is used to compare things to each other. Similes, right? The productiveness of a godly person is like a tree, beside a stream. Wicked people are like chaff blown away during winnowing. The long-term cumulative nature of a person's lifestyle is like walking step-by-step down a path. Poetry is a language of images and it uses many comparisons. It is inherently fictional, stating things that are not literally true or comparing one thing to something else that is literally not. Images that invoke our imagination. Poetry is a place of lions and rocks and arrows and grass, and it would be weird and it would be wrong to read poems as theology first before reading them as poetry. Once the poem is interpreted, theology can then be brought out. There's so many metaphors here, and metaphors are bolder than a simile because instead of using like, it asserts that A is B, right? Like in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, or in Psalm 5, 9, their throat is an open grave, or in Psalm 57, 4, men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. So whether the poet uses simile or metaphor, they are making connections for you. When the psalmist writes that God's law is a lamp unto my feet and a light for my path, he's drawing on a connection between the properties of light used to illuminate a pathway for walking and a moral effect of God's law on a person's behavior. It isn't a simile because it isn't like that. It is that, but not in a literal sense. When the psalmist says God makes the clouds his chariots, he intends us to see the correspondence between the swift movement of the clouds across the sky and that of a chariot over a road. They both secure an effect at that level and then ask the reader to transfer the meaning 
to a different level. And the parables are similar. Poets do not invent comparisons, but they do try to discover them. That's important. They're not inventing these things. They couldn't create a metaphor. They couldn't create a simile because if they tried to do that, the relationship between the two, the relationship between the two has to either exist or does not exist. And if the connection didn't already exist, you wouldn't be able to understand it. So this is an intellectual, experiential, and intuitive process. The very fact that a metaphor or a simile are in the sentence obligates the reader to first responsibly identify it and then to interpret what it means. And we need to do this with the New Testament as well. Paul and Jesus use figurative language all the time. All right, back to the Psalms. Can you spot the simile and the illusion in this Psalm? It's 133 verses 1 and 2. Behold, how good and pleasant is it when our brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head, running down the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. The simile is that the unity of brothers is like precious oil on the head. And the illusion is Aaron's head and his beard and his robes. And you can just picture the oil gushing over him and maybe his smile or joy as he is affirmed as a priest of the Most High God. Don't know who Aaron is or about the priesthood? Then reading about him would help you understand this illusion. Poems are full of this stuff. Metaphors of God as a shield. Similes like our tongues are like razors. Symbols of the light shed on righteousness, the illusion of the heavens being made by God's word, the personification of trees singing for joy, the hyperbole of weeping all night long, or the paradox of the mercy of the wicked being cruel. Now, paradox is featured in the New Testament prose a lot. You can take something that looks on the surface like a paradox but then when you look closely, it conveys truth. Paradox forces the reader to resolve the contradiction until they see it isn't there. The mercy of the wicked is cruel. This means that even the very best acts of the wicked harm other people. You know that though. If you're feeling overwhelmed, just stick to seeing imagery and symbols and you will be fine. Figurative statements don't make sense at literal levels. The wicked clothe themselves with violence makes no literal sense. It has to be a metaphor. My tears have been my food day and night is hyperbole because tears can't be your food. Light is shed on the righteous. Okay, that could be literal, but a light that shines only on the righteous hasn't existed yet in our reality. The sun shines on all people. Our lights shine on all, so... Light in this context must represent something, and it's likely God's favor or blessing. The types of poems you'll spot and feel most comfortable with are the lyrical poems. They're comparable to our songs today. They're brief, they have themes, they're personal, they're subjective, they're connected, they're compressed. You'll, you'll identify with them. They, they're a response to a stimulus right? Like something about God, something about our enemies, something about a personal crisis, something about nature. You get the idea. There's a stimulus that causes the lyrics to flow. 
our current songwriters will say they've been inspired. The inspiration isn't coming from God in the way of scripture, but they're being inspired by a stimulus. When you're looking at a lyrical poem, you don't need to search for a story. You'll only find occasional snapshots of a narrative to explain the feelings of the narrator. What you should be looking for is feeling. What is the mood of the poem? When you're in Psalms, it helps to keep in mind that there are different types, but you don't have to know all the different types by name or label them in your Bible. If you apply what you know about poetry, you're going to be fine. There are lament poems, though, um, in case you are interested in the labels. Lament poems are uh, private, communal prayers. Usually you see a cry to God and then a complaint and then a petition, and then a statement in confidence in God, and then a vow to praise God anyway. If you're having a really rough time, and you know what? All honesty, I'm going through a little rough patch uh, right now. This is the right thing to dwell on. Cry to God, complain your heart out, put out your petition, state your confidence in God, and vow to praise him anyway, right? And we also have praise psalms. These have an element, an element of elevation or exaltation to God, and they usually have three parts. Uh, praise, praise, and then the end. There are also worship psalms, and they don't have the a really set form, but they'll just be referencing worship, usually in a location. Honestly, it's mo- most of the time it's Zion or Jerusalem. We also have nature psalms. They praise nature for its beauty, its power, its provision, all kinds of stuff like that. And occasionally they are celebrating how nature gives us reason to praise God. Then we move into the saucy lyrics of the Song of Solomon. That's where you're going to find love lyrics, right? Love poems are usually set in a rural setting right? With shepherds and shepherdesses and pastures and animals. There are love poems that are invitations to share life and happiness together, using nature to represent walking through life. There are poems that praise beauty and virtue and smarts. Sometimes those are compared to nature. There's wedding poems And all of these are highly symbolic rather than realistic photos. Because if you think your beloved's neck is literally like a tower, then she's a giraffe. Finally, we have lyric poems that praise qualities and character traits of others. Has a big fancy name, Ecomium. Psalm 1, 15, 112, 128 praises godly people. Proverbs 31 praises an ideal wife. John 1 and Colossians 1 praise Jesus. Hebrews 11 and Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13 praise the qualities of faith and love. Isaiah 53 is actually a parody of that type of poem. I hope this provides you with more tools for happy reading and contemplation with the 33% of the Bible that we might have skipped before. Thank you for listening. Anakinosis is a project for anyone anywhere who's looking to renew their biblical worldview. Next time, we'll turn our attention to the wisdom literature.